0: You know, he's faithful to give us what we need. And one of the things that I realized early in life was that one of the things I needed most that God was happy to give me was a network of friends. And one of my very best friends that we, that friendship started in junior high in seventh grade was a fellow named, and we're still friends. We're still in touch. You've heard stories about uh, over the years. My mom was convinced that most of the trouble I got into was was guardian was be, was because of it's from Bill that i received my appreciation for that brilliant form of humor called punning brilliant form of humor called brilliant called punning uh, in fact it, he got it from his dad you know his dad would pun with him and then pun with me he was one of those kinds of friends that Well, wherever you were with him, everybody was laughing, everybody was happy, everybody was smiling. And we've maintained that friendship over the years. A few years ago, I was up in Portland and driving past where I knew Bill lived. And I thought to myself, I ought to stop and see Bill was living on a sailboat in a harbor, uh, down on his luck, not really doing so well. And I realized that in my heart were these conflicting thoughts. That's my friend, and I ought to stop and see him. But there was this other thought. He's probably going to be drunk. He's always drunk now. And when he's drunk and he sees me, he tries to assure me that he's okay by reciting Bible verses to me. Always with alcohol on his breath and with slurred words. I said, I'm, I'm just not up for it. I'm supposed to be on vacation. I don't need to go and work today. And the, the tough part was that in high school, was up until his senior year, halfway through it, he was one of those guys that verbalized how foolish it was for high school students to drink. Why, do every, why does everybody need that? I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. Stupid to go lose control of yourself and consume alcohol and try to act big. And One day at a party, I introduced him to his first beer. Come on, it's fun. And he drank that beer, and he drank another beer and another beer, and the next thing you know, Bill was intoxicated. And little did I know that on that day, I was going to be responsible for flicking a switch in from which there was no return, there was no off switch for Bill. That's when we realized that he had that seed in him that launched him into a life of alcoholism from which he was gonna find it very difficult to recover if he could ever recover. He could maybe tame that monster, but he wasn't going to be able to kill that monster. So imagine my conflict when I'm driving down I-5, and I'm going near to where I know Bill is, and I know that he's hurting. I know that he's lonely. I know that he's been rejected by his family because his alcoholism wore them out years ago. He has a daughter he's never been allowed to meet. She's an adult now, teacher in Phoenix. All of his siblings and his parents got to meet her and have relationship with her. They won't let him know where she is. He mourns over not being connected with the all these things, and his best friend in the whole world, which he'll tell you I am, didn't want to stop and see him. So, I hit the cruise control and turned up the radio and headed for California, right across the Columbia River, within miles of where he was, heading down to Portland and south. You know, on the day that Jesus was crucified, you know the story, he hung on the cross. There was a conversation between Jesus and the other two, the two thieves that were hanging alongside of him. Initially, one gospel tells us that both of those thieves were initially mocking Jesus. Another gospel adds to the story and said, But one of them apparently stopped mocking and rebuked the one, the other thief, and said, Wait a minute, don't you understand we're hanging here because we're guilty? This man hasn't done anything wrong. And that's the thief that stopped mocking and turned to Jesus instead and said, Look, when you you enter your kingdom, can you imagine the irony of that? They're both hanging virtually naked on a cross, talking about this kingdom that you're going to enter. They didn't look like there was going to be any kingdom. But when you enter your kingdom, is there room for me? Remember me you remember that story? That's the one to whom Jesus said, ah, gone from mocking to hoping on this day, you'll be with me in that kingdom. You'll be with me in paradise. And we look at that, and we all recognize what that is. That's mercy. We recognize that's mercy, but we don't always recognize or remember what mercy actually is. What is measurable mercy? What does mercy look like? What are some of the components of mercy that we need to remember and need to forget, especially when we're being tempted to drive past the person who needs us? What they need from me, like Bill did on that day, was mercy, not judgment. But I'm not stopping, man, because I don't want to work that hard. I don't want to smell his breath. I don't want to walk onto his rickety old boat. I don't want to hear him recite Bible verses to me in a drunken stupor, slurring all of his words. I love him, and I wish I could have my friend back, but I don't. So no mercy for you today, Bill. I'm sorry, friend of 20 or 30, whatever it was years then. What is mercy? I know this. That wasn't it. That was non-mercy. It wasn't what Jesus offered from Golgotha. What does mercy really look like? What can we remember about it today? And I want to bring up reminder in three different ways, from three different angles, to reassess mercy in our lives, to reattach ourselves to the commitment to mercy, to be able to know that we can recognize it and give it what it looks like, what it feels like, what it's associated with. And here's the first reminder about mercy. It's good to remember, especially in this political season, but not only, Just so we have so many great examples of this point every day. That mercy is stifled by arrogance. You cannot have mercy and arrogance at the same time. Mercy goes with humility, tenderness, at least the expression of it. Mercy is stifled by arrogance. Arrogance is kryptonite to mercy. Mercy. Listen to Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two men go down to the temple to pray. They're alongside each other. This is, this is a parable. It's a story that Jesus is telling to make a point. Now, his audience is Jewish. And so in the Jewish mind, they recognize within a few seconds, a few words, who the good guy is in the story and who the bad guy is in the story. And the good guy in the story, to the audience that Jesus is speaking to, is a Pharisee. They have the nicest uniforms. They have all the social standing and all the power. They're the religious elite. They know all the laws. They can, they can recite to you not only the scripture, but the address. You know, they're those, they're those people who you saw in Bible school, if you went to Bible school, who thought there was something that's connected between faithful Christianity and being able to recite the verse and tell you the address. That's 27.9. You know those guys? That's a Pharisee. They're good guys. And then the bad guy is a tax collector who oppresses people and becomes wealthy from the oppression. So that's what we're setting up here. Mercy is stifled by arrogance. It's fed by humility. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Again, his audience knows who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm a winner, I'm an achiever, I'm an accomplisher. You know that, I know that, everybody knows that. Thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers and losers. Or even like, he praises, even like that tax collector standing over there pretending to pray. God, I thank you, I fast twice a week I give a tenth of all I get, and so on and so forth. Notice how wonderful I am, God. You're lucky to have me on your team. But in strong contrast here, Jesus says in this story, the tax collector stood at a distance. Already you see humility. He would not even look up to heaven because in his mind is this idea of... I'm just lucky to be able to come into the presence of God and pray. I'm not going to look him in the eye. I'm not going to look up to heaven. I don't deserve to do that. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In fact, he didn't just say, have mercy on me, a sinner. The text goes out of its way to be very, very clear. This is like a shout. This is like the text saying, don't miss this, because this is so irregular, it stands out. He actually says, have mercy on me, the sinner. That wasn't normal verbiage. That wasn't normal grammar. You wouldn't always put the article there like that. Have mercy on me, these sinners. Like, there are sinners, and I'm the king of all sinners. Have mercy, even on me, that tax collector says. But look what Jesus does to connect arrogance, humility, and mercy. He says, You you've got the good guy in your mind, you've got the bad guy in your mind. This story just did a change up. Jesus says, I tell you it was this man, the tax collector, the chest beater, rather than the other one, the one you would expect to have earned the right to be forgiven, who went home justified before God. Who, who consumed the mercy and took advantage of it and lived it and experienced it? The humble person, not the arrogant person. For In case you miss it, he wants to make it clear. For all those who exalt themselves are fixing to be humbled. And all those who humble themselves... Will be exalted. Mercy is stifled by arrogance. May, may I be so bold and trying to be clear? You've got to get this straight if you're going to follow Jesus. If we're going to follow Jesus, we cannot miss this. This is Christianity 1a. Humility is essential. Theological humility, relational humility, social, political humility. We should have no tolerance among ourselves or in our national leaders, in our church leaders, pastors, leadership team members, neighbors, brothers, or sisters for arrogance, for the kind of stuff Jesus just taught about when coming to the temple to pray. There's got to be this sense of, Lord, have mercy on me on my best day. I don't deserve to look you in the eye. You give me that privilege have mercy, nobody's so good at sinning as me. Now, that's not, I'm a piece of dirt, I have nothing to offer, oh, poor me. That's just a dose of reality and appreciation. That's us saying, that mercy you offer, it's a good thing you offer it, because I need it. Everybody needs it. Arrogance and humility are opposites, and arrogance stifles Mercy. Humility feeds mercy. It's good soil for mercy. And it's good soil not only for receiving mercy, got to go beyond that, that's good soil for offering mercy. You have to have a good memory to offer mercy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's like what I needed last week and received. I think I'm going to offer you some of it too. Forget that how quickly the Christian church forgets about the importance of humility and dignity and kindness. For goodness sake, I mean, I want to say to some leaders, if you don't have true humility in your heart, for goodness sake, fake it. Shut up once in a while and fake it then. Uh, I weren't so busy having to say that to myself so often I could maybe focus on others more. Second point, mercy is stifled by arrogance. Mercy is seen in personal sacrifice. So how do, we see, how, do we, how do we practice mercy? One of the ways we practice mercy is by personal sacrifice. I'm setting aside my own rights, never my own dignity, but my own rights. I might choose to not practice them and lay down my life For somebody else. There's a sacrifice that's made that's linked to measurable mercy. It's seen in personal sacrifice. Now, we don't have to search too far for examples of that. All we have to do is go to the basic example of mercy, and that's mercy personified Jesus. Romans 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were all still powerless, when we were all still stuck at the wall, beating our chest, begging for mercy. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us before we had even the intuition of need. He died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But in strong contrast to that, God demonstrates the severity of his own love For us in this, that while we were still rotten, while we were still sinners, the text said, Christ died for us. That's sacrifice. That's mercy. I mean, that, if that's, he lays down his life and says here, the ultimate mercy. It's shown in a personal sacrifice. You mean that much to me. You understanding the grace that's offered means that much to me even while you're sneering at me still. I step back. I set aside my life. I lay down my life. I experience all sorts of pain because the love is speaking more powerfully, more loudly than the pain. You know you would step in front of a train or take a bullet for your grandchild or your child. Why? (laughs) There's no such thing as a love like that except for your child or your grandchild or whatever it might be. You've got so much love. Your heart's going to explode you love them so much. It wouldn't even take another half a thought to give your life for them. And the text reminds us that the love we have for our children, our spouses, our parents, our grandchildren, is almost like hatred when compared to the love God has for us. Mercy. It's linked with personal Sacrifice. It's linked with the ability to take the position of that woolly bugger. And tie the cord around your own wrists and ankles. Get up on the altar and give yourself away. That is Christianity. That is biblical faith. That is following Jesus. Loving someone with whom you have severe disagreement because they're human, and that's it. Whatever it is we've added to the list of what makes someone a biblical Christian, we should never take that off. Personal sacrifice. It's normal for followers of Jesus because it was normal for Jesus. Mercy. It's seen in personal sacrifice. And my third and final point. Mercy is linked with forgiveness. Duh. Yeah, well, but duh. Because we sing about mercy and then find it difficult to forgive, don't we? Don't we? The scars are too deep to forgive. Oh, we think things like this. We feel them. I certainly do, and I'm assuming that we're not that much unlike each other. To act in forgiveness almost is to, feels like it's to, to dismiss the scar that was caused in me. To minimize the sin against me if I forgive. Do you guys not battle that? Some of us don't battle it, and that's the problem. I've got a cousin, Joey Greco. I hated, we grew up together, I hated him. I used to have, I'm not talking about 20 years ago, I'm talking about last year. While I was up here preaching as one of your pastors... Joey Greco was in the recesses of my mind taking a beating or getting hit by a train. It was something bad happening to Joey in my mind all the time. So I could not forgive that guy. He committed the ultimate sin against me. He accused my mom who was the most generous person to a fault almost. I mean my brother and sister and I had to say mom, okay, We've got to take away your checkbook because that money is for you to live on and you're giving it away to all your nieces and nephews. So you you've got to calm down, mom. You've got you've got to take care of yourself with this. My mom's that generous. And 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 Joey accused my mom of stealing from his mother's, his late mother's account, stealing, on purpose, taking a ring out of his mother's estate, a little, I don't know, a couple hundred dollar ring and stealing it from him and his kids so that my mom could give it to her daughter. What she was actually doing was protecting it for Joey's sisters. But you're, wait, Joey, you, no, you don't mean that. You're not calling your Aunt Carol a thief. She is a thief, and so are you all, but she stole. Your mother's stealing, and she's hiding. And if jo, It's a good thing, jo, I was in Portland hearing that phone call, and he was in San Jose. Because we'd have gone bloody knuckles over that, Christian or not. I'd ask forgiveness for it later. I was going to get great joy out of pulverizing that guy. Call me a thief if you want, but not my mom. She's sweet. And for years in my mind, I just kicked his butt. I just beat the snot out of him, beat the skin off of him in my mind. And the more I thought about that, the worse it got in me, the more the rage and it rage felt like righteous indignation. But there was nothing righteous about it. Mercy would have been righteous. Sometime last year, I don't know, maybe in the middle of a sermon about grace, the Holy Spirit busted my chops. Art. Come on, man. You did a lot more than accuse somebody of being a thief. And I forgave you. You've got to forgive Joe. You cannot preach one more sermon about forgiveness until you forgive him. And I didn't want to. I fought against it. I still had daydreams about tearing him up. But the Lord wouldn't let me stay there. And I knew that I didn't want to forgive, so I went, you know, something I'd do is I'd go to Jeff and Ben, Pastor Jeff and Pastor Ben, or maybe some other close friends, and say, My cousin Joey, I hate him. I don't want to not hate him. I want to keep hating him. I want to keep that fire burning. But I can't. I'm not allowed. So please help me get from here to there. Help me show mercy. Mercy is linked with forgiveness. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me, who offends me? And, and he, he was going to ask the follow-up question and be very generous. Up to seven times, which is extraordinary. Peter was being hyperbolic. Up to seven, that's the rule. Jesus out parables, out uh, not parabolic, he was being hyperbolic. Jesus out hyperbolizes him. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, and Peter must have said, "Phew, 77 times. In other words, every time. It's like Jesus is saying, when, you, when I stop forgiving you, you can stop forgiving that person. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. 10,000 bags of gold. More hyperbole, but you get the point. It's Quite a debt. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So he's going to be sold. His kids are going to be sold. His wife's going to be sold. And everything that he owns is going to be sold to pay back the debt. It probably wouldn't have even begun to cover the debt. Everybody's turned into slaves. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. So from 10,000 bags of gold, compassion, and forgiveness of the whole debt, just like that. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins, quite a bit less than 10,000 bags of gold. And he grabbed him, and he began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay back the debt. But he refused. Instead, he went off, had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants saw What had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me? Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just like I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Now remember, it's a parable. Just get the main point from the parable. Here's the main point from the parable. When you're forgiven as much as we've each been forgiven by God, it seems reasonable to practice forgiveness for those who have offended us. Because no matter how much we've been wounded, it doesn't really compare to the depth at which humanity has broken the heart of God. And been forgiven for it. When you're forgiven. Have a good memory. You forgive. That's what mercy does. Mercy is linked. With forgiveness. Many of you saw the. Movie Unbroken. or read the book. about Louis Zamperini last year. It came out I think. Maybe the year before. And all of that. Terrible torture that he experienced at the hands of his captors. There was a scene that I loved early in his captivity. Brutalized, brutalized, brutalized. But then there was one short scene where one of his captors comes and looks both ways to make sure none of his colleagues can see and slides Zamperini a little extra food, a little extra water, a little extra something. And then he says in effect this. I serve. I serve. I serve. You're God, too. A little mercy. And it goes downhill from there. That was the bright spot in his captivity. Terribly brutalized in that war. There are folks that were his captors that were kind and brokenhearted over what they saw and did what was right. And those, in his experience, that were awful. Didn't do what was right. But either way, Zamperini finds Christ... <laughs> Goes back after the war, tracks down everybody he can, wounded him, hurt him, mistreated him, told them about the love of Jesus, and begged them to receive his forgiveness, come into his friendship. Why? Because mercy is linked with forgiveness. Want to show mercy? We forgive. Way difficult to do. So I had to act quickly before I lost my resolve. Down about North Portland, I got another one of those mean messages from God. He just nags me, man. He will not leave me alone. He's such a nag. It's like you're walking along and there's the lord right at your shoulder from behind you. Hey, hey. And he turns just as quickly as you do. Hey, hey, come here. Hey. Greco. Leave me alone. No, it's not in my nature. And I had this powerful thought. 3 syllables. How dare you? How dare you leave your friend from seventh grade rolling around in the emotional vomit that his life has become? You turn around and you go smell his breath and listen to his slurred words and show up and remind him that he's human and he's precious to somebody and his friend hasn't forgotten him. Either that or never give another lecture about what friendship is. Amen. And before I could change my mind, because I knew I would, one more mile, I was gone, justifying. This was one of those days I got it right, and I turned around, and I went back to see him. And he was drunk. And he wasn't that much fun to be with. Didn't smell particularly great. And he recited scripture verses to me, slurring all the words, the same verses he recited every time I called him. You know what both of us received on that day? We received what God always offers mercy. Mercy. It's assassinated by arrogance. It's always connected with personal sacrifice. It's connected also with forgiveness. And it's the Christian norm. May it be our norm. The band's going to come up now and we're going to worship a little bit more. We're going to receive communion and then we'll be done. But as they're coming up, join me in this prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you continue to teach us from your word what you began to teach us through this sacrament of communion. Cause our heads and hearts to grasp now what our hands will soon hold and our tongues will soon taste. Give birth in us to that one thing that many churches preach, but so few actually practice. Give birth to mercy. The experience of it, the practice of it, the reception of it.